Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. The National Coronavirus Recovery Commission has released 265 recommendations focused on very different aspects of American society that represent a prudent balance to protecting both lives and livelihoods. These recommendations are directed at governors, local leaders, the federal government, civil society, and the private sector, and focus on the necessary steps to reopen America in a safe and expeditious way. The Commission knows good health policy is sound economic policy, and the innovation and forward momentum that has always characterized the American people is reliant on a dynamic economy. After releasing our recommendations over the past two months, we are pleased that you were able to join us for the official launch of the comprehensive National Coronavirus Recovery Commission's report. Today, you will hear remarks from Commission Chairman Kay Coles-James, followed by a special address from the United States Secretary of Labor, Eugene Scalia. Lastly, our program will conclude with specific ways you can help protect both lives and livelihoods as the country reopens. To get us started, Please welcome Heritage Foundation President and Commission Chairman Kay Coles-James. COVID-19 has wrought devastation across the globe. More than 115,000 Americans have died. Millions of Americans have lost jobs. Most businesses were forced to close for months and thousands upon thousands of businesses have permanently shut their doors. Today, we're releasing a report that seeks to offer a measure of hope and a path to recovery. For nearly 50 years, the experts at the Heritage Foundation have worked to solve the most pressing issues that America has faced. That's why, as the president of the Heritage Foundation, I felt an obligation to put our experts to work to find solutions to recover from this crisis. On April 6, Heritage announced the creation of the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. The commission was tasked with developing specific, actionable recommendations for policymakers and for the American people. Those recommendations would help navigate the nation through the pandemic and toward recovery. In addition to our own experts, Heritage brought together experts from around the nation in the fields of medicine, economics, government, business, disaster relief, education, and religion. We assembled some of the greatest thinkers in our country to solve one of the greatest problems of our time. 
While other public and private task forces looked at either the economic or the public health aspects of the pandemic, the commission focused on finding the right balance between the two. Our task hasn't been an either or between saving lives or saving the economy. If the economy fails, there will be severe long-term health consequences. And if we fail in stopping the disease, there will be severe long-term economic consequences. So the commission's mission has been about protecting both, both the lives and the livelihoods of the American people. To that end, the commission developed over 250 specific recommendations for federal, state, and local governments, as well as businesses, churches, charities, and community organizations. The report we're releasing today stands as a comprehensive guide to recovering from COVID-19 and also future pandemics. The commission also looked at how the coronavirus has disproportionately affected minority communities. In some areas, minorities experienced double the number of cases and double the number of deaths of the white population. The virus has shown us that until we resolve the underlying health, financial, and social problems of these communities and commit ourselves to human flourishing for all Americans, crises like this will always have a disproportionate effect on certain Americans. One of the biggest lessons learned from this experience is the need for a better civics education on the proper role of government. The American people witnessed governors and local leaders who took on excessive authority and wielded it to the detriment instead of the aid of their citizens. We also saw governors who blamed the federal government for not doing enough when many of the responsibilities actually rested with the governors themselves. And finally, the work of the commission doesn't end with the publication of this report. Our commissioners and heritage experts will continue working with policymakers in Washington and across the country to implement these recommendations. We'll also measure which recommendations are adopted and how they perform. Then we'll report those results to the American people. I want you to hear from our commissioners today. So I'd like to show a brief video featuring several of them. Each one will highlight a particular recommendation that he or she wants America to take special note of. Let's roll that video. My favorite recommendations address our dangerous vulnerability to essential medical supplies from adverse and indeed unreliable sources. So we recommend to Congress that they make our laws and our policies much more internationally competitive for the manufacture 
of medical supplies, pharmaceuticals, research and investment to return to the United States of America. Our report provides a well thought out strategy for how to restore economic vitality in the United States, thereby significantly reducing our unemployment rate and maintaining and enhancing our standard of living. Affirming one of our critical recommendations, identifying clergy and the community of faith collectively as essential. The spiritual health of this nation is likewise essential and the full integration of faith leaders in our comprehensive recovery will be instrumental for months and for years to come. One of the early recommendations we made from our National Coronavirus Recovery Commission is to eliminate unnecessary government regulations at all levels. For example, during the heart of the pandemic, we had volunteer doctors and medical personnel coming from places like, say, Utah, and showing up in New York City, where she or he performed most admirably. And nobody asked, did you pass this New York test? Or are you really sure that you should be here? Instead, they were welcomed with open arms and they really performed. Let's eliminate those unnecessary government regulations so that everybody can rise to the full extent of her or his ability. You know, coronavirus caused a huge disruption in social and educational services for children with special needs. It placed an enormous burden on parents. Trying to work from home while doing 24-7 home care, it pushed families to the breaking point. So as we prepare for the next pandemic, I believe states must not disrupt support services for children with disabilities. One recommendation to underscore is telemedicine. It reads, the commission recommends that Congress join the states in acting to ensure that patients have access to the care and coverage they need by taking further steps to encourage adoption of telemedicine so that patients can communicate around the clock with medical providers through tools like phone, email, Skype, telemedicine, and other innovative delivery arrangements. And I believe that we must engage civic institutions in helping citizens to protect themselves. It is not just the responsibility of government. The commission recommends that state legislators review and possibly revise their statutory grants of emergency power to governors in light of executive actions taken through the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm most proud of two recommendations that the Commission made. The first is actually a collection of recommendations which encouraged business leaders to lead, to reopen their businesses while keeping employees, customers, suppliers safe. The second is our recommendation on medical conscience protection, which honors our medical professionals for their courage and their love and allows them to practice their profession going forward in concert with their conscience and their faith. The commission recommends that better data is gathered through testing and contact tracing by the states. Targeted random sample testing at the state and county levels will help determine the prevalence of the virus because many who are affected are asymptomatic. We hope the 264 recommendations that we made will be insightful and beneficial to you. There are several individuals who deserve thanks for serving on this commission. First, 
I want to express my gratitude to our executive directors, Charmaine Yost and Paul Winfrey, and our spokesperson, Rob Bluey. Second, I want to thank our tremendous researchers and staff at Heritage who worked day and night and many weekends with our commissioners to develop this report. And finally, but most importantly, I want to thank all of our commissioners. They did this because of the love they have for this country and for their fellow Americans. Thank you, George Allen, John Allison, Lawrence Blanford, Kevin Chavis, Ed Fulner, Tim Flanagan, and Senator Bill Friss. Thank you, Loey Landini, the Reverend Sam Rodriguez, Secretary Nelson Sabatini, Joni Tata, and Francis Towson. Thank you, Brigadier General Richard Tubb, Congressman J.C. Watts, Gail Walensky, and Bob Woodson. Thank you for the outstanding work you've done and for answering the call when your nation needed you most. It's my sincere wish that this report offers a measure of hope and serves as a guide for helping America recover from one of the most significant and economic crises it has faced. Whether we faced pandemics, world wars, or economic depressions in the past, America has always emerged from her challenges stronger. I'm confident that with these recommendations and with the unparalleled can-do spirit of the American people, this nation will again emerge from this new challenge even stronger than before. Now, I'd like to introduce a great friend of the Heritage Foundation and a wonderful member of the administration to work with. It's fitting that we have with us today Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia. As Secretary, he plays a critical role in the American recovery from COVID-19. The Labor Department has a central role in overseeing the new federal programs that were created to help workers and their families respond to the coronavirus. And Secretary Scalia has been an outstanding advocate for protecting American workers during the crisis and for removing unnecessary regulatory burdens that will hinder our recovery. President Trump has called him one of the most qualified people ever confirmed as secretary. And we're truly honored to have him with us today. Secretary Scalia, thank you for joining us today for the release of this important report. The floor is yours. Okay, thank you for that introduction. And it's a pleasure to join you as the Heritage Foundation releases the thoughtful final report of its recovery commission. At the start of this year, Americans enjoyed a record-setting economy. Though it wasn't the economy the Congressional Budget Office had predicted back in the summer of 2016. Back then, the CBO said that by February of this year, we'd have an unemployment rate of 5% and we'd, we'd have created 1.9 million jobs. In fact, in February, Unemployment was 3.5% and our economy had created 
not 1.9 million jobs, but 7 million since January 2017. Wage growth had been at or above 3% for 19 straight months. And as President Trump said in his State of the Union address, this was a blue-collar boom. Workers in the bottom 10% of income saw higher average wage, wage growth than those in the top 10%. By January 2020, low-income earners had seen a 15% pay increase since the president took office. In his State of the Union speech, President Trump explained how we got there. Quote, from the instant I took office, I moved rapidly to revive the U.S. economy, slashing re a record number of job-killing regulations, enacting historic and record-setting tax cuts, and fighting for fair and reciprocal trade agreements. President Trump's policy decisions led to a vibrant, prosperous economy, one we all enjoyed until a few months ago. Then, in a matter of days, life changed completely. The coronavirus sent the nation into hibernation. Shops and factories closed. Freeways and airports were emptied. Society itself was halted. Bars and restaurants, concert halls, sports stadiums, even places of worship fell silent. Many thousands of American lives were lost. In a little over two months, more than 40 million unemployment claims were filed. The president was right to recognize that as a nation, we'd been plunged into an experience comparable to war. Like the First or Second World War, combating the virus required a nationwide mobilization of government and of the ingenuity, know-how, and productive capacity of American industry. There has been a front line in our hospitals and nursing homes and a home front as men, women, and children across the country stayed home to protect fellow Americans. As during war, we have pulled together to achieve national objectives, and we have had occasion to consider what makes this nation great and distinct from others, such as China. This institution, the Heritage Foundation, is dedicated to preserving American exceptionalism and the principles on which it rests, included, including limited government, individual freedom, and free enterprise. I still recall during the Reagan administration being a speechwriter for a future heritage distinguished fellow named William Bennett and coming to your brand new building on Massachusetts Avenue to hear from speakers on topics of the day. I even recall a panel discussing who President Reagan might nominate if he got a second Supreme Court appointment after Sandra Day O'Connor. I heard some terrific prospects mentioned. Today, I'm grateful to have been invited by Kay James to join your ongoing discussion about America's heritage and its future. Well, I said a moment ago that in our battle with the coronavirus, we've pulled together to achieve national objectives. That's true. We are seen as living in highly partisan times, but in March, President Trump and Congress shaped three major pieces of legislation that reflected a broad, deep plan for contending with the impacts of the virus. This included paid sick leave for small business employees with coronavirus so they would leave the workplace without hesitation to help slow the spread. And that leave was fully reimbursed to the employer through tax credits. It included the Paycheck Protection Program, forgivable loans to small businesses to help them cover rent, utilities, and importantly, payroll. The program has kept millions of workers on payroll and, and attached to their employer so they and the company
are poised to stand up quickly and get back to work as the country reopens. That same legislation, the CARES Act, provided economic impact payments of $1,200 to American taxpayers, plus $500 for dependent children. And it included substantial unemployment benefits, $600 a week on top of what the states pay for unemployment, as well as benefits for independent contractors and the self-employed who ordinarily don't receive unemployment compensation. Partly as a result of these programs, our Amer Americans are in a very different position today than in our last economic downturn. The personal saving rate was 33% in April, by far the highest ever recorded since, since at least 1959, and many times higher than the 6.7 rate at the end of the Great Recession in June 2009. As we reopen, those savings will help revitalize our vast economy. And we are reopening, and our economic reopening has started well. The Labor Department issued an extraordinary jobs report 10 days ago. It showed that in May, unemployment dropped nearly a point and a half, and we added 2.5 million jobs. That report came as a great surprise to many observers and frankly, some were annoyed. Many of these people work for our major media, and for some of them, good news can be bad. This condition they have gets especially severe in election years. For this crowd, millions of Americans going back to work is perilous, as in the New York Times headline saying, quote, falling jobless rate could imperil aid underpinning the recovery. You and I think it's good when the number of coronavirus cases drops. But at the New York Times, that's also risky. As in this headline from the lead story in a recent Sunday edition, quote, new cases in U.S. slow, posing risk of complacency. The Washington Post the next day found what they called a, quote, new problem. For weeks, they'd been complaining there weren't enough coronavirus tests. But now in the headline to their lead story, they said, quote, as testing expands, a new problem arises, not enough people to test. In fairness, the mainstream media can also find good news where most people would think it's bad, like this report from the BBC, quote, 27 police officers injured during largely peaceful anti-racism protests in London. Well, I hope you'll forgive this digression. I think you will. While the May jobs report was unexpected, in a very important sense, it was not a surprise. We came into our current economic difficulty by a completely different path than prior downturns. It was self-imposed and purposely short-term. It did not result from an economic weakness. The economy had been very strong. The comparisons to the Great Depression have always been misplaced our circumstance is different. Now, the more promptly and safely we reopen, the better our prospects of regaining the economy we had until March. That's reflected in the numerous surveys, by the way, showing that 85 to 90% of Americans who were put out of work believe their job loss is temporary. In a sense, many of these jobs weren't lost. Many of the jobs were still there waiting for economies to reopen and workers to return. What the May Jobs Report does show 
is that this reopening began earlier and more robustly than expected. And critically, the survey period for that report was mid-May. We know that many, many jobs have been refilled in the month since. So in the month of May, we turned the corner against the virus. Now, as we look ahead, allow me to identify some principles that should guide us. For starters, we know our job is not done. Millions of Americans remain out of work with the unemployment rate at 13.3% in May. The Department of Labor will continue to work with the states to help them get unemployment payments to workers who are entitled to them. Likewise, the virus is not gone and continued precautions are essential to continued reopening. These past months, we've learned volumes about the virus and how to contain it. We must keep practicing those lessons, including hygiene and often distancing and masks. Our discipline since March won us the ability to reopen. It didn't win us the ability to jettison all discipline with giddy abandon. The increase in cases we've seen in some locations results from several factors, including increased testing. It does not indicate we reopened too early, but it does confirm we must remain vigilant. That includes in the workplace. The department's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, has been helping workers and employers prepare for coronavirus since January. To date, the agency has issued 17 different guidance documents for specific industries, plus general guidance for all employers and workers. The industry-specific guidance covers workplaces ranging from nursing homes and meatpacking plants to construction and curbside pickup. Each document tailored to the particular risks and precautions for that work environment. From my discussions with employers, it's clear that business leaders have never been as focused on worker safety as they are now. That said, we know there are always some businesses or managers who will give safety short shrift. We have existing regulations and statutory authority to deal with that. We are fielding and investigating worker complaints, including complaints of retaliation for raising safety concerns. We will not hesitate to bring enforcement action where necessary. What we won't do at this time is adopt an unnecessary emergency rule specific to infectious diseases or coronavirus. Last week, the Federal Court of Appeals here in Washington rejected a lawsuit by the AFL-CIO trying to force us to do that. OSHA in its history has never been as focused on a single workplace risk as it is now on coronavirus. The amount of guidance we're providing in our investigative activity in the field are unprecedented. But we do not believe that for every new challenge there must be a new federal rule. Rather, we believe that we already possess the enforcement authority we need and that our current approach is the best means to protect workers and give employers guidance and confidence in the steps to be taken to provide a safe workplace and satisfy their obligations. We're pleased the Court of Appeals unanimously agreed that our approach is, quote, reasonable. As businesses reopen safely, we're also focused on helping workers make the transition back to work. The additional $600 unemployment benefits 
provided in the CARES Act was an important measure to support workers who in many cases were being denied by government order the ability to earn a living. In the Great Recession of 2008-2009, the additional federal unemployment benefit was $25 a week, not $600. Concern has been voiced by many, including uh, the Heritage Foundation's Recovery Commission, that the $600 benefit, when combined with the unemployment benefit paid by the states, will deter Americans from returning to work as jobs become available. A worker receiving the $600 plus up on top of state unemployment benefits receives an income that annualizes it between $50,000 and $55,000. In Massachusetts, this means a worker on unemployment currently has an annualized income of as much as $74,000. In several states, that figure is $60,000 annualized or higher. A University of Chicago study found that 68% of workers are receiving unemployment benefits greater than the weekly wages they received prior to layoff. I believe that most Americans want work, not an unemployment check. And if a worker refuses suitable work, including an offer to safely return to his prior job, he's ineligible to receive further benefits. The Labor Department has been reinforcing these requirements with the states including in a letter I sent to governors earlier this month. That said, when Congress wrote the CARES Act in March, it scheduled the $600 plus up to end July 31st, a point by which we expect the economy to be deep into the process of reopening. Congress recognized that in an opening economy with millions of jobs becoming available, that measure would no longer be called for. The CARES Act is an admirable piece of legislation and its enhanced unemployment benefit has provided valuable support to millions of Americans. But the extraordinary circumstances that called for the $600 benefit in March will no longer be present come August. Different policies will be called for. At the heart of those policies should be recognition that the single best thing for American workers is creating conditions for a vibrant economy. We don't have to look far to see that's true and to see what those policies are. We just have to look back to February of this year. Four months ago, as I mentioned, unemployment was at 3.5%. Wages were rising and were rising faster for lower wage workers. Since 2018, there have been uh, more vacant jobs than Americans looking for jobs. In February, there were 1.2 million more vacancies than workers looking for work. When I spoke to business people, the concern they mentioned most often was finding skilled workers they could hire to sustain growth. The labor market was a seller's market. It was a worker's market. Many good things came from that. Perhaps the best, and I know the president joins me in this, was it provided more opportunity for Americans who historically have had less. African-American unemployment was at an all-time low in the Trump economy, and the poverty rate among African-Americans was the lowest ever recorded in records going back to the 60s. In the words of a Wall Street Journal news story last week, pre-coronavirus, we had, quote, the best African-American job market on record.
We also saw record low unemployment for Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, and for workers who don't have a high school degree. Unemployment for adult women hit a 67-year low. In this Trump economy, employers were making stepped-up efforts to hire men and women who'd served in our, in our armed forces and stepped-up efforts to hire men and women who had served their time in the criminal justice system. Helping men and women re-enter the workforce from the criminal justice system was a focus not just of the president and his First Step Act. It was an interest of employers, too, who were growing their businesses and giving second chances to workers that in a different economy they would not have had. This Trump economy is also one where businesses wanted to help train workers. Frustrated by the lack of vocational education in high schools and the often dubious value add at four-year colleges, businesses were charging forward on their own or in collaboration with community colleges, establishing apprenticeships and other training programs that conferred needed practical skills that workers could use to succeed in that workplace and in the labor market at large. Businesses know better than government what skills are and will be needed in the workplace. In the tight job market of the Trump economy, they were leading the way. And states were responding too, as a demand for workers pressed, pressed against unnecessary obstacles to their livelihood, like occupational licensing laws that impede competition, make it harder to fill vacancies, and make it especially hard for military spouses to find work as our soldiers are restationed from one base to another. In red states and blue, a demand for workers was lower, lowering these barriers. Well, this was the story in workplaces across the country when I became Labor Secretary last September. And as Labor Secretary, one of the most painful aspects of the coronavirus has been watching it upend that labor market. A labor market that had so incentivized American businesses to extend jobs, benefits, and opportunity to men and women who hadn't had enough opportunities in the past. That is the economy President Trump built, and it's the economy we'll bring back. We'll do so through the principles and policies that delivered that economy the first time. That includes tax relief and vigilance against unnecessary regulatory burdens so that American businesses can flourish and create the jobs that were providing unprecedented opportunities to so many Americans just a few months ago. That's why at our last cabinet meeting, President Trump signed his executive order on regulatory relief to support economic recovery, ordering federal agencies to take additional steps to ensure regulatory fairness and ease regulatory burdens. And it's why the president has been discussing a reduction in the payroll tax and other tax relief to incentivize the, the job growth that can make our job market a seller's market again. These are principles we're already pursuing at the Labor Department. In the same week as the president's order, we took four notable regulatory actions. One of those by itself will save $3.2 billion. How? simply by letting employers give workers information about their retirement accounts online rather than by mail. Workers and retirees who do want to get plan information by mail 
can still do so by opting out. But millions more will find it convenient to have the information online. And that will save a lot of money as well, by the way, as a lot of trees. The last three months have been a period of exceptional and essential government intervention. With the Families First Coronavirus Response Act and the CARES Act, President Trump and the Congress enacted a swift, sweeping, bipartisan plan for protecting American workers in our economy from the measures necessitated by the virus. There's now discussion of a possible final bill later this summer. The Senate Minority Leader has described his ambitions for an additional bill as Rooseveltian. For me, that statement called to mind two monumental statues from the New Deal era outside the Federal Trade Commission. On each statue, a powerfully built horse is straining to charge forward, but is being held by, back by a giant muscle-bound man. The statues are titled Man Controlling Trade. I still recall as a boy uh, driving by with my father and him commenting ruefully that the statues showed in his words, government restraining the beast of free trade. I was young, but understood my father to be expressing some skepticism that trade is actually such a terrible beast. And now, with hindsight and understanding the view of the Constitution of the man who became Justice Scalia, I appreciate that there was more to his comment. The founders of this country were principally concerned to restrain government, not with creating a hulking government to restrain free enterprise. The genius of our Constitution is the autonomy it allows the people and the ways it, it checks and limits government so that private individuals and institutions may thrive. A number of restraints by the government are essential, of course. So are government relief programs. But for all we've been forced to ask the government to do recently, we must not mistake government programs for the economic growth and opportunity that come only from the private sector. And we must not forget that it was limiting government, not expanding it, that delivered the extraordinary prosperity we enjoyed so recently and to which we all want to return. Thank you all and congratulations on the release of your final report. As we close our program today, please welcome the Commission's Executive Directors, Paul Winfrey and Charmaine Yost. Thank you, Secretary Scalia, for giving us your time today and for those inspiring words. And thank you to all of you for joining us today. In the spirit of the all of society approach taken by the Commission, we'd like to end our time this afternoon by sharing several concrete ways that you can help implement and build on the Commission's recommendations. We'll begin with your personal livelihood. What can you do when it comes to work and personal finance? First, talk to your employer about their plans to safely allow you to return to work, including whether or not they'll pay for any required testing as the condition of coming back into the office. You should also talk to your employer about flexible options to alter your work schedule or continue teleworking. Third, you should avoid commuting on mass transit as much as possible. If public transit or ride sharing are your only options, wear a mask to reduce exposure. Fourth, small business owners, 
to ensure that you are able to stay open in future emergency situations, put plans in place now for operations in a reduced capacity should a similar situation arise. You should also take charge of your personal health. First, if you develop identifiable symptoms, contact your personal physician and self-isolate. Continue to follow the latest guidance about testing and quarantining before returning to work. And then next, if you have a loved one in a nursing home, you should ask what steps staff are taking to protect residents, including whether additional cleaning, testing, contact tracing, and other mitigation steps are in place. Third, you should ask your medical providers about telehealth options in order to interact together remotely when practical, as well as their plans for returning to the full spectrum of healthcare services. These aren't the only areas in which you as an individual can play a role. First parents, support the reopening of schools this fall, while also asking about rapid response plans and remote learning options should they be forced to close again. Second parents, you should reevaluate the best way to get your child to school. Children are often transported in groups out of necessity and convenience. Whenever possible, transport your children in a family vehicle. And now that it's summer vacation season, think carefully about travel. If you travel, be sure to take and record your temperature prior to traveling. Bring health documentation for any virus testing or antibody results. And if going internationally, plan for a little bit of extra time for health screening at port of entry, during departure, and the arrival process. And then lastly, please consider volunteering in your local community to help spread the word. Help your local service organization, church, or social club explore ways to implement the report's recommendations in your local community. You could also consider drafting a letter to the editor of your local newspaper, raising ideas from the report. We can all play a big part in saving lives and livelihoods. For anyone who's interested, you can read the full report at coronaviruscommission.com. We love to keep hearing from you. There's a contact section on the website where you can send us your feedback and share stories about what's happening locally. Thanks again to the commission for all their incredible work and to you for helping America on the road to recovery.